Hello, I'm Mark Sweeney, and on this episode of ITG's ABCs, a feature on which I like to recap and comment on anthology and backup comic stories, I'll be taking a look at a 40-year-old two-parter starring imminent movie star, everyone's favorite Amazon princess, Wonder Woman. The story I'll be looking at comes from World's Finest Comics, numbers 246-247, cover dated September and November 1977. Wonder Woman was one of five features in each of these issues. World's Finest had recently been expanded to dollar size. So filling out 80 pages of stories. One would find the cover feature, always a World's Finest duo story, Superman and Batman. Uh, But in these two issues, you'd also find a Black Canary story, a Green Arrow story. Those tended to blend together for me being done by pretty much the same creative team. Uh, But you'd also find a vigilante story to go along with Wonder Woman. Now, I bought this run of World's Finest for the vigilante serial that ran through five issues of this title, numbers 244 through 248. And several of those chapters are drawn by Gray Morrow. Excellent stuff. Excuse the vigilante pun there. And I really planned on covering that Vigilante serial for this show, and I still plan to. These issues of World's Finest are definitely worthy of double-dipping. But I thought I'd shamelessly cash in on the Wonder Woman movie hype and talk about this enjoyable two-parter here. Wonder Woman joined the book with Vigilante in issue 244, but uh, when the Vig was replaced by the Creeper, blech, I still ended up picking up the rest of Wonder Woman's run on the title, which lasted through issue 252. And I could have chosen a couple of those stories from the Wonder Woman feature. There's the two-parter where Diana tackles Poison Ivy. Or that time in World War II where she met Sergeant Rock. Uh, And those may eventually find themselves onto the show, but I ended up choosing these two stories because, well, I like them. Um, takes place in the past, keeping in line with the film, though this story doesn't go that far back. And it does feature another surprise war hero guest star, and it's also the debut of a villain. Um, a villain who made a big impression on me the first time I saw him. And I know I've talked about this either here on the show or ad nauseum on Twitter, but issue 35 of All-Star Squadron featured... Baron Blitzkrieg's brutal murder of Z-list hero the Red Bee. And that was quite eye-opening for me at the time. I think at that point I was used to the antics of Super Friends villains and Batman TV show villains who came across as kind of silly. But Baron Blitzkrieg was, I think, my first taste of true comic brutality. True evil in its most physical form. So I met Baron Blitzkrieg in his gouty, nauseating outfit in All-Star Squadron, and then assumed he was created as a villain for that series. It wasn't until many years later that I discovered he'd made his debut here, as a Wonder Woman foe. Alright, so here we go. Part one of the story, called The Baron's Name is Blitzkrieg. is found in World's Finest issue 246, under a Neil Adams cover, featuring... The truth about Superman's twin brother. 
is typically great Adams showing Superman caught in the act by Batman and Wonder Woman. He's feeding a bowl of slop to his identically dressed hunchbacked twin. This Superman-Batman story is also a two-parter by Bob Haney and Kurt Schaffenberger. It's typically zany, has some JLA cameos and a surprise villain. Fun story, and really, along with the Vigilante and the Wonder Woman chapters, it really rounds out these issues, making them a great value if you ever find them. But the Wonder Woman story, this first part, is written by Jerry Conway, illustrated by Don Heck and Vince Coletta. It begins on a foggy night in London, 1942. With Wonder Woman running around having adventures during the 40s, plus the presence of Baron Blitzkrieg, who'd later fight the All-Star Squadron, this squarely places the story on Earth 2. Uh, but I think it's best not to get hung up on that fact, considering a character who shows up later as having been established as Earth 1, this little blip doesn't really take anything away from my enjoyment of the story. The World War II setting was influenced by the first season of the Wonder Woman TV show, which at the time was set back then. In fact, in Wonder Woman's own title at the time, the setting had recently switched to the 40s, I guess hoping to ease the minds and imaginations of all those TV viewers that were driven to the newsstands to, to buy Wonder Woman comics. Like that happened though it was nice to see the original Amazing Amazon in the comic spotlight again. This was, of course, short-lived when the TV show changed networks and the setting was updated to present day. Comics followed suit. Golden Age Wonder Woman was dropped like a hot potato, and that's reflected in the last couple of World's Finest that Wonder Woman's featured in. The setting has suddenly shifted from Earth 2 to Earth 1, and the more modern Diana is able to dust it up, as I mentioned earlier, with Poison Ivy. Now, I understand the business sense in all this. Comics wanting to keep in line with more popular media. And history does repeat itself. As 40 years later, the comics are still following the TV shows they inspired. Sometimes I just wish comics would own their role as the source material. Uh, but this is a minor gripe. I'm enjoying a couple of the DC shows, and I love the old Wonder Woman show. And I'm getting way off topic. So, Foggy Night in London Town, 1942. A U.S. general, Adrian Hawkins, as well as a sentry guard, are attacked and killed at an Allied command office. Hawkins is thrown through a window from a great height, third or fourth floor. By a... Uh, ugh gaudily dressed supervillain Baron Blitzkrieg. If you've never seen this guy, he's in a bright yellow body armor, orange gloves, orange boots and briefs, and a pink cape and pink chest emblem, some sort of Nazi cross. He's imposing, but not as threatening, I'd say, here, drawn by Heck and Coletta, with a faceplate has a peekaboo window for both eyes. Not as threatening here as he would later look, illustrated by Rick Hoberg in All-Star Squadron. There, the slightly redesigned faceplate resembled Iron Man's, but I think it added a real sinister quality to the look. And here, like I said, he's imposing. He's an imposing brute, but also comes across a little like someone cosplaying Manga Khan. 
Major Steve Trevor and his assistant yeoman Diana Prince, called in to investigate the general's murder, though the attending British intelligence agent doesn't seem to take Diana, or any women for that matter, seriously. Feigning meekness and excusing herself, Diana takes the opportunity to scope out the crime scene on her own. She notices a seawater stain on the carpet, and since General Hawkins' boots had checked out clean, Diana deduces that the killer must have come from the ocean. She also notices Hawkins' briefcase has been cleaned out, and panics when she thinks that something called the Auchinleck file is missing. For that would mean disaster for the British Army. Between panels, Diana makes a few calls and gains some intelligence that a German sub had been seen nearby off the coast, so Wonder Woman makes the scene at a likely landing spot and finds a beached rowboat. To me, it seems like she goes out on a limb, assuming that this boat belongs to the killer, but with only a breakneck 15 pages to tell this half of the story, there's no time for bad coincidences, and Wonder Woman is immediately attacked by a shovel-wielding fisherman-type guy. When he's easily swatted away, he produces a pistol, but that's just as useless, and a quick game of bullets and bracelets later, and this cockney-accented traitor is spilling his guts under the influence of the lasso of truth. And this creep, who speaks with a lot of coos and blimeys, is incredibly well-informed. He confesses to being a paid agent of the Third Reich, who knows an awful lot about General Hawkins' killer Baron Blitzkrieg. Wonder Woman coaxes the Baron's origin out of this guy, the Baron was a Prussian nobleman, very friendly with Hitler. The unnamed Baron was placed by the Fuhrer in charge of a death camp. But when a young condemned Jew threw a glass bottle at the incredibly vain Baron's face, it shattered, causing irreparable damage. This deformity somehow weakened the Baron in Hitler's eyes, and he was Willing to put his former friend at risk, Baron was subjected to various drug experiments, something like the Super Soldier program, I assume. And some injected cocktail gave the Baron the ability to use the full, untapped power of his mind, giving him super-enhanced strength, speed, and reflexes, which I think is pretty much what Deathstroke's powers are, right? Now, thus was born Baron Blitzkrieg, though I have no idea where Hitler got that strange yellow, orange, and pink color scheme. Wonder Woman's prisoner also confirms that the Auchinleck file was indeed Blitzkrieg's target. General Cloud Auchinleck was at one time in real life the commander-in-chief of Britain's North African and Middle Eastern fronts, and Blitzkrieg is after information on Britain's plans in those regions. Plus, Wonder Woman is told, once Blitzkrieg has the plans, he's off to kill Auchinleck himself, who's at this time in London conferring with Prime Minister Winston Churchill. So Wonder Woman quickly dumps her informant with Scotland Yard and hurries to the British Army Staff Building, which is suddenly engulfed in flames. Inside, Diana rescues an officer in Blitzkrieg's clutches, but gets a filing cabinet to the chest for her trouble. 
She tosses a loosened piece of plaster and catches Blitzkrieg right in the kisser, dislodging his faceplate. Well, exposure of his face is his kryptonite. And he flees the scene, wailing about, My face! My face! Later that evening, Diana Prince discusses the series of events with Steve Trevor, who's holding on to Blitzkrieg's faceplate. Trevor is to confer with General Auchinleck and Prime Minister Churchill. And on their way, Diana sees a tossed grenade out of the corner of her eye. She pushes Trevor away from the blast that destroys their car and kills their driver. Something, or someone, quickly swoops in and steals back the faceplate. This happens fast enough for Diana to think to herself, comparing this human blur, Blitzkrieg, to her JSA pal, The Flash. Blitzkrieg darts away and Diana fears the worst. He's going to attack the Prime Minister. She ducks into an alley, does her little spinny, changey thing, and leaps through, amazingly, the exactly correct window to see General Auchinleck looking on as Baron Blitzkrieg has Churchill in his grasp. This final panel of the story kind of makes me chuckle as Churchill's face is obviously and accurately copied from a photograph. And it looks so strange uh, with his decently yet cartoonishly rendered body and hands to be coupled with a photorealistically done portrait. It's, it's an odd match. And the fact that Churchill's face is pointed out at us, the reader is making eye contact with the camera, so to speak. He just looks like a sad sack. <laughs> the story's exciting, good cliffhanger, but overall in this chapter, I think the art is a tad weak. Vince Coletta's inks really overpower Don Heck's pencils. And there are a few panels that stand out to me as a, a more pure Don Heck. But throughout, a lot of the figures, they're drawn loosely. They lack the confidence of those in the next chapter, where Coletta is matched, I think, with a, a much more appropriate partner. And we'll be taking a look at that second half of the story, coming right up. Hello there, this is Jared Albrecht, a.k.a. The Yard Sale Artist, with a quick podcast promo for my show, Comics with Normies. Here's how the show works. Using my yard sailing skills, I acquire a random comic book from a yard sale. I then give said random comic to a normie, a normie being a person who doesn't normally read comic books. Then, on the show, I'll sit down with the normie to discuss the issue, get a real outsider's point of view, and see what some of the comics that we love and maybe not love so much, seem like to those normal folks we see walking around on the streets each day. It should be a fun perspective and good for a few laughs. You can check out the Comics with Normies podcast, along with some other fun-filled podcasts from White Rocket Entertainment, on iTunes and at whiterocket.podbean.com. And feel free to join the show using the Twitter handle at Normies Podcast or on Facebook at Comics with Normies. Once again, you can find Comics with Normies on iTunes and at whiterocket.podbean.com. We'll see you there. All right, the Wonder Woman story in World's Finest 247 is called The Man in the Doomsday Mask. It's under a Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, Dick Giordano cover. 
depicting the world's finest team lead feature. Wonder Woman, Flash, and Green Arrow stand mouths agape as Batman yells, Stand back! No one can stop new Superman from taking over the world. And a platoon of goose-stepping Superman soldiers march by with their S-shield flags and armbands. Remember how 25 years ago Superman armbands were a thing? Did you pull yours out of the poly bag and wear it in grief? All this propaganda is happening under the gaze of a Zeke-hiling Superman, allegedly Kal-El's deformed twin brother. This is the conclusion of that particular two-parter. As is this Wonder Woman story, which picks up right where we left off, Winston Churchill in the clutches of the big banana Baron Blitzkrieg. This was written by Jerry Conway, same as last time. Inked by Vince Coletta, same as last time. Uh, penciled by Jose Delbo, and I think this is a better, more appropriate match for Coletta's inks. Wonder Woman has arrived on the scene just ahead of a trio of British soldiers. Now, fearing for the lives of both the soldiers and Churchill, Diana actually ambushes the commandos who had come in rifles blasting. With that distraction, Blitzkrieg waltzes out of the government building with his two hostages, Churchill and General Auchinleck, and he commandeers a Steve Trevor-driven jeep, ordering Trevor to the airport. Mach schnell! They have a plane to catch to Berlin. Wonder Woman, from her invisible plane, witnesses Blitzkrieg force Churchill, Auchinleck, and Trevor into a British bomber. Trevor is to fly the group across enemy lines into Germany. As soon as the bomber crosses into French airspace, though, it's immediately set upon by some German fighters. Seems like Baron had not really thought through this plan of commandeering a British plane. Luckily, though, the Baron's hostages have a guardian angel, Wonder Woman. She's awesome. She gets right out on her plane's fuselage and with her golden lariat, lassos one German fighter and swings it crashing into another. Physics aside, this is a great feat, great visual. Unfortunately, one of the fighters slips through and shoots down Steve's bomber. From the cover of a forest... Diana is relieved to find that everyone has survived the crash landing. But the little group is immediately set upon by a German patrol, and this, this little group of crash survivors is so funny looking. Two brown uniformed men flanking a short, stout, purple-suited Churchill. And towering in the back row of this group shot, the big pink and yellow banana. Well, Blitzkrieg just starts barking orders at this patrol, but they've apparently never heard of him. In fact, they mistake the Baron for an allied spy. Colonel Wolfstoffel threatens to turn the group over to the SS, but that's not going to work for Blitzkrieg. In a very cool Jose Delbo panel showing the force and speed of the punch, Blitzkrieg strikes the colonel, and in the next chilling panel, the way Wolfstoffel is laying there, eyes open, Blitzkrieg has obviously killed him. The remaining Germans are more open to taking the Baron's orders now, and Blitzkrieg commands passage on a train to Berlin. Now, as she's been shadowing them this whole time, Diana also makes arrangements to be on that train, and when she boards the 
crowded car in something she calls her Parisian disguise, and we know it's so because she's wearing a purple beret. Diana overhears a conversation in compartment 123 that gives her pause. A group of French resistance fighters under the leadership of DC battle star Mademoiselle Melly, completely unaware that the British Prime Minister is being held prisoner aboard by Blitzkrieg, plans on blowing this train to kingdom come. Now, this is where, I guess, someone could call into question the location of the story. Steve Trevor, Diana Prince, Baron Blitzkrieg, they're all firm Earth-2 inhabitants. But Marie, who, if you play Six Degrees of Separation, has teamed with or met both Sergeant Rock and the Unknown Soldier, who have themselves shared adventures with the Earth-1 Batman and Superman, eh, like I said, it's best not to get hung up on this too much. And if any, any labels at all need to be added, I think it might just be easiest to call this the one and only recorded adventure of the Earth 2 Mademoiselle Melly. Well, anyway, Diana overhears this plan to destroy the train and thinks to herself, she can't believe it now that she is forced for the third time to save the life of Blitzkrieg by protecting his prisoners. She quickly spin changes her outfit and bursts into Marie's compartment. And despite Marie's exclamation that she's heard of the braceleted superheroine from British radio broadcasts, she and her fellow freedom fighters open fire on what they think is a Nazi collaborator. Though those bullets, uh, they're not getting past Diana's bracelets. Diana grabs the stash of their explosives and tosses them outside the train's window. She gets a rifle butt to the chin, knocking her out cold. And this, eh, I'm not so sure I buy it. Diana's many times suffered more punishment than this and shrugged it off, but the story must go on. I also find it funny that Blitzkrieg and Diana have now both been mistaken as enemy collaborators by those that would be their allies in this story. Speaking of Blitzkrieg, he's lording it over his prisoners in the private car at the rear of the train. He's got his Nazi overcoat draped over his shoulders and sipping a chilled wine. Steve Trevor can't take this aristocratic asshole act anymore. He thinks he sees an opening, swiping a gun from one of the lackey armed guards, but Blitzkrieg has a surprise for him. A till now unseen superpower, the ability to focus his mind's power into a laser vision which melts the gun in Steve's hand. Meanwhile, in Marie's compartment, Diana's wrapped up in her own lasso of truth. Marie, knowing the properties of that lariat, again from those British radio broadcasts, now takes Diana at her word and believes that there are some VIPs that should be saved from their sabotage. The only problem is a couple of Marie's comrades are just now carrying out their backup plan. As the train ascends a huge hill, they plan on cutting the last car loose and watch it careen back down the hill and, they hope, crash against something very hard. Diana and Marie race to the back of the train, but they arrive just a moment too late. The coupling is cut and the car begins to slide back down the hill. That doesn't stop Diana, though. She leaps across the gap through the car's door and confronts Blitzkrieg. Baron is ready to show off his new laser blasts, but 
Diana uses her bracelets to reflect the beam right back into Baron's face with a the robot plane swoops in for a nice rescue. Diana and the prisoners hop aboard as the Baron's train car derails and smashes into the side of the hill. And aboard the plane with the other two hostages, Steve wonders if this is the last they've seen of Baron Blitzkrieg. We know it's not, but that doesn't take away from the exciting climax of the story, the way Wonder Woman won't give up on the man she loves, confronting the big bad head-on and in the searing blazes. Laser meets bracelet. It's pretty awesome stuff. A hero you love to love versus a villain you love to hate. Comics at their primal best. So much action in the second part, and it really leaps off the page, particularly strong as that stunt where Diana lassos one Nazi fighter into another, and that Climactic bullets versus brain blasts panel. Jose Delbo and Vince Coletta make a pretty dynamic pair in this story, whereas the Heck Coletta team seemed, I don't know, almost hesitant, unsure. The art in this issue is bold and unashamed. Maybe Conway gives them more to work with in this chapter. Lots of explosions and fisticuffs. And Maybe not a historic meeting between two female freedom fighters, but I think it's really cool. It's an unexpected and not everyday team up here between Wonder Woman and Mademoiselle Marie. And though it's never been reprinted, this is an all-around pretty nifty little Wonder Woman story. Told originally at a time when she was a hot media property, and those days are here again. I'm really looking forward to this film coming out this week. In fact, I don't think I've anticipated a superhero movie this much since Batman 89, really. So, I hope you all get a chance to go out and see it, and I know I will. But in the meantime, check out some images from these issues that I'll be putting up on the show's blog, imthegun.blogspot.com. There you will find my email and Twitter contact info should you want to chat any more about Wonder Woman. I want to thank some folks who helped promote my Supergirl episode on Twitter. Kara got likes and retweets from Chris of Bat Books for Beginners, Chris Sheehan of the blog Chris's on Infinite Earths and Cosmic Treadmill Podcast, Costa Vutsinas, Gregor Rougeau, who expressed his fondness for Bronze Age super stories, James Hudson, Jason Jarolowski, Joe Crawford of the Tumblr for the Non-Discerning Reader, Justice's First Dawn, Carl Disley, Lava Hog, Terence Castingway, and Darren and Ruth Sutherland of Trekker Talk, Warlord Worlds, and Xenozoic Xenophiles, Martin Gray of the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog, wrote he was thrilled to have sparked an episode. I had mentioned that it was a suggestion from Martin that got me thinking about covering a story from Superman Family. And Martin's comment got a little conversation going between himself, Chris from Mythmaking, etc., and Dr. Ange of the Supergirl comic box commentary about the Superman Family title, which I recently was able to pick up a couple dozen issues of for a pretty decent price. Speaking of Ange, I got a nice comment on the blog from the good doctor. He wrote, 
I have all these Superman family books, and the Supergirl stories are, for the most part, hit or miss. That said, there's a running long-term plot about the Energy Ball, which is seeking revenge on Kara. I don't know if you know what that turns out to be, so I won't spoil. And it did call back on a lot of Silver Age Supergirl stories, which I loved. Usually, Supergirl's history was just ignored. Like you, I thought that Monel watching Supergirl so closely felt a bit stalkerish. And you left out the very catty, next time I see you, Shyla, I'll pull your hair out comment from Kara. The most memorable thing about this for me. Hope you review more. Yeah, I think I just condensed that hair-pulling comment and called it a threatening exchange. But it was interesting that that rarely seen side of Kara's personality came out. And there's definitely a chance that I'll revisit these stories. As I said in the episode, I'm very curious to see how some of these plot threads play out. And while I can't be 100% sure, not yet reading the follow-ups, I've read enough superhero comics that I think I can guess the identity of the energy ball that seems to have it in for Supergirl. Thanks for writing in, Ange. Martin Gray chimed back in with a blog comment. Martin wrote, Thanks for looking at some Superman family stuff, Mark. It was especially interesting around this time as the strips interacted with one another more. Silver, Bronze Age Supergirl remains my favorite version. I love that her story developed so much. She went from orphanage to adoption to finding her birth parents were alive. She chained jobs seemingly every few months. She had a life in the 30th century as well as the 20th. Zorel and Alora moved from Kandor to Rockin. She got married. Okay, we'll forget that last bit as it was pants. Call it an aberration from the period when pre-crisis reality was reforming into post. Basically, Kara went on an awesome journey, always trying to make decisions to be proud of. And if she very, very occasionally got catty, I can live with it. I also loved her line to Jax Ur here. Tough for you, chubby. And Lex Luthor was that bald bandit. The idea that the JLA at this point would give Snapper glowing references as a head-scratcher, he's basically a nice guy, but so weak-willed. And I've never heard Daximin instead of Daximite. Did that show up anywhere else? And why did Superman and Supergirl not just bring the lead poisoning cure back from the 30th century? Excellent question, Martin. Martin goes on. I love that Jack Abel has Les Lalar in the classic Jim Mooney one-arm-on-hip standing pose in the flashback. It's fascinating to have Kendorians express opinions at the L's laissez-faire approach to imprisoning criminals in the Phantom Zone. Jack C. Harris was terribly underrated as a writer. I don't remember him being anywhere near a fan favorite until the Ray miniseries with Joe Quesada. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to reading more Supergirl from this time. I really can't wait to crack into those recently purchased Superman families. I agree with you, Martin, about Snapper Carr. While I find his betrayals of the League added some interest to the character, I think Snap's best moments are reserved for the Hourman series by Tom Pyre and Rags Morales. In that Daximin term, used for someone from the planet Daxum, that stood out to me like a sore thumb, too. I can't recall it ever being used before or since. And I don't think I ever want to hear it again. Monel and Laurel Gand will always be Daxamites. Thank you, Martin, for taking the time to comment. And a big thank you to all those who helped promote the show and 
An extra big thanks to those who download, stream, somehow get a hold of these episodes and take a listen. All right, that'll do it for this episode. So until next time, 16 pages is just too much story. Take care.